Okay, we got them both? Okay, please turn to the Gospel according to Luke. Gospel of Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 16. I'll be reading Luke 10, 1 through 16. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them out on ahead of Him, two by two, into every town and place where He Himself was about to go. And He said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Father, let us all in here hear and receive and love and rejoice in the message that You have sent to us through Your disciples. Oh, may You manifest Your presence May you be shown to have been received in our hearts, in our lives, in the midst of us this morning. And therefore, help me unfold this glorious passage in your precious, glorious, saving name. Amen.
what we read here this morning. is applicable to our three months of fasting and prayer in this church for the harvest in the field of Sovereign Grace Fellowship. Start there with verse 1. And after this, after the three in the road, I'll follow you anywhere, and Jesus has a comment for him. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. So he takes 72 or 70. In the Greek manuscripts, actually the evidence can go either way. It's pretty much equal. In Did he say 70 or did he say 72? So he sends out 35 or 36 pairs, these are other than the twelve apostles with a particular kind of a mission. He's got others now he's going to send off to the towns he's going to. And the stakes in this mission are really high. We will see in our text, they are this, judgment for rejecting their message. Or the people will be receiving the Savior through receiving these disciples. And the stakes are still the same today. In that the the church, the body, the disciples of Christ in local church expressions has the commission of speaking for Jesus the Gospel, and praying, begging God to send out more laborers into the harvest. And that's what we're doing the first three months of 2012, is pleading with God to make us reapers, to bring into sovereign grace fellowship those who are being changed eternally by the gospel those who are centered on the life of Christ the first thing we see in this text is that because the message of the gospel is so crucially important you got to slow that that do you believe that got to get that. because the message of the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus is sending these 36 pairs out with and us. Because of that, therefore, prayer is essential. Look at verse 2. And Jesus said to them, The harvest is plentiful, But the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest that He would send out laborers into His harvest. It's right there in black and white ink. Or red, 
depending on your Bible. The logic is really simple. Because of A, because this is true, therefore act this way. See? Because of the harvest. That is, in the context, what does he mean? Because the wheat of people's souls of the harvest is ready to be reaped. Therefore, pray. Literally, that word is beg. Please, please, please. To who? Pray to the Sovereign One over the harvest. Beg Him that He would send out workers to reap the field. That's what that text says. And if we're paying attention to it, you should feel baffled. And God often baffles us with things that are said through the mouth of Jesus. At least on the surface. He is the sovereign Lord of the harvest. And yet, He has sovereignly ordained to act in response to our prayers. See, if as a Christian you think, well... No, God is sovereign and He's predestined all that will be. And He's chosen all who will be saved from the foundation of the world. Therefore, He will save all that He plans to save. Got that? Conclusion! It doesn't matter whether I pray for Him to do it or not. If you think that way, you don't know what you're talking about. You have an unbiblical idea of the sovereignty of God. He says in this text, the harvest is plentiful. Okay. In other words, unbelievers are ready to become believers. They're ready to be harvested in my sending you with the message. Okay? So first off, it's clear. Jesus knows that people need now that He's sending out to go into the field to reap the wheat of the souls of men and women. Okay. Because He knows that, what does He do? He commands us to pray in the harvest. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Conclusion. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send in more workers into the harvest. See, as strange as that seems on its surface, it teaches us something really important about God and about the Christian life. Just feel his illustration how weird it is. Okay. You got all these day laborers out there on the farm. And here's the sun 
of the owner. The wheat has come in. It's ready to be reaped. And he says, okay guys, oh, before you go out there and reap, go and beg the owner to send out more reapers into the harvest. Well, what are we to understand about that? Are we to understand that the owner, that the sovereign one of the universe, that the sovereign one of the harvest field is dense? And he just doesn't know that he has not enough reapers? So, guys, first, go wake him up in the house and tell him, hey, you need more people. Is that what we're supposed to take? Or, oh no, maybe he knows, but guys, beg of him to send out more laborers because really, the owner, my father, is indifferent to the salvation of souls. He, he really doesn't care that much about reaping souls for eternal life. Okay, I'm going to say no. He doesn't mean that. Then why are these workers for the gospel told to beg the sovereign God of the universe to send out more workers, to get more the only answer I know is that God has willed that His miraculous work of salvation, His miraculous work of causing sinners to be born again in the hearing of the Gospel, be preceded by prayer. See, God does all that He does ultimately for His glory. God loves to glorify His name in the salvation of sinners. God loves to show mercy, causing sinful people like us to be born again and come to His Son, Jesus Christ, and be justified by that faith. He delights in it and He glories in it. But, He glorifies His name even more when He does that as a result of our begging Him to do it even more. It's the way God is. He is more glorified when He fulfills His predetermined plan to save this person when He does it subsequently to the prayers of people that were also predetermined from the foundation of the world. Jesus is showing that before God does great works of harvest, He first does a great work of the Spirit in His disciples to pray to Him, to beg of Him to do the harvesting. And through those prayers, God is more glorified than He would have been otherwise if He just did the harvest. 
Okay. If the Hebrew means the of sila means pause, stop, think about it. This is a good time because if we believe that, I know in my life. Oh, at the moment I'm strongly thinking and believing it. It really helps me be encouraged to pray. So. In response to sermons like this, you end up praying more and praying more fervently and earnestly for God to save and to disciple people through the farm of sovereign grace fellowship. Then that praying, which was predetermined by God, think about it, is a really good sign that He will do what you're asking Him to do. We'll come back to that at the end. Then Jesus gives them, after the command to pray, He gives them their assignment. Starting with verse 3. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. So, He warns them out of the gate that to be My disciple and to go out and proclaim the Gospel, the good news of the Kingdom, means you will be opposed. He he uses lambs and wolves. Well, I think it's still in the theaters, uh, Liam Neeson's movie, The Grey. I would say go see it, but it's pretty brutal, don't you'll get a better picture of what it is. I mean, it's hard enough to be a human being out there amongst wolves. To be a lamb? He's saying, I am purposely doing this. You have nothing in yourself to trust as a lamb amongst wolves. You're dependent on Me. The One saving you. That's what He's getting at. As He goes on, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. Don't pay any money on this mission. This is a very focused, short-term missions trip. The, the knapsack is... There, there were itinerant preachers in the day, and that knapsack was their supply bag of all their stuff that signified independence. But he says, don't take that. Don't take extra sandals. Nothing. Really light. And utterly dependent on God. Oh, oh, don't greet anybody on the road. Okay. Jesus is not saying, be rude and unfriendly. He's not saying to Steve and Bill walking down the road, someone yells out, hey, you guys are Jesus' disciples, aren't you? Don't, don't look over there. Don't look over there and don't say hi. It's not His point. His point is don't get caught up in chit-chat on this mission that is not directly connected to the mission that I'm sending you on because I'm coming to each one of these towns and I want you to prepare the ground. Be focused on the mission of preaching and healing that I'm sending you on. Don't get distracted by money in your bag and everything else. And Jesus goes on, starting with verse 5. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, 
Your peace will rest upon Him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. So, he says, go to one house, bless the man of that house. What does he mean, bless him? Just blessing? And put, he, he means, essentially, God, let your favor rest upon him. In the context here, it's got to be. God, let them be a, a house. Let this man be a person who receives your peace. That, 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 that's what he's supposed to do. And we see that because ultimately, whether that person does receive the peace depends on them. Because he says, if they receive your peace, awesome. If not, your peace will return to you. It's the grace of God declaring peace to sinners in the gospel of the kingdom. And the point is, as they go to these houses in these towns, if the person is one who is affected by the kingdom of God, the power and the reign of God, is alive to the message that they are bringing, that person is a son of the kingdom. Or as he says here, a son of peace. And if a son of peace is there, what will happen? Your peace will rest upon him. If not, if he's not a son of peace, your peace will bounce off him and come right back to you. Then Jesus goes on to tell them how they are to conduct themselves in each town and to be supported. Verse 7, And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. So he says to these 72 men, Look, right now, your day job is the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. It's the ministry of the word to these towns. And your paycheck comes as a result of that work. Your basic necessities of a roof over your head and a bed to sleep in and food to eat and to drink will be provided for you as your wages by those who profit from your message. See the word for? It means argument. Because the laborer deserves his wages. These words of Jesus that Luke records here were picked up by the apostles and show up later in the New Testament in the writing of the letters, decades after Jesus spoke these words. For instance, in 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 to 18, Paul writes, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And, 
the laborer deserves his wages. Then Paul referring to Jesus' words, because when he says, Lord, listen, he's referring to Jesus' words here, and then he just paraphrases the meaning of them when he writes to the Corinthian church. In the same way, the Lord, meaning Jesus in his earthly ministry, commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living from the gospel. Jesus tells the disciples now how to respond to towns that receive the message. Pick up with verse 8. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So he says, as you go, those who receive your message are going to say, eat, let us feed you. Jesus says, eat the food. Because he's saying, I am providing for you guys through them. And Jesus, like He did with the twelve apostles earlier, He empowers these 72 guys with healing power. With kingdom power to go into these towns. We'll see, to cast out demons and to heal the sick. And that healing power in their ministry is the demonstration of the presence of the kingdom that Jesus brought and is being extended through them having been commissioned by Him. That's why they are to say the kingdom of God has come near. Probably meaning it's here. The kingdom of God has arrived. That's why your crippled boy is no longer crippled. Remember, as we have discussed throughout Luke, the kingdom of God, it, it refers to this initial inbreaking of the promised rule and reign of God through the king from the line of David, fulfilling Old Testament prophecies. The kingdom of God now here in the midst of Jesus' ministry is the powerful, real presence of God. Not a physical reign and rule, but an unseen, spiritual dynamic that has come with the coming of Jesus Christ in His humanity. The kingdom of God, as we discussed, is an in other words, not only then, but today. It's present. But it's still not yet complete or consummated. There are many prophecies about the coming of the kingdom in the Old Testament that are still not fulfilled. But the power of the kingdom as we see in our text, is present. And He tells these 72 guys, as you go, you tell them why healings are happening and demons are coming out of people. It's because 
The kingdom of God that was promised is here. It's present. It's very near. Now, one day, in Jesus' second coming, He will raise the dead to everlasting life. The final judgment will come. The new heaven and the new earth will be here and He will have finally consummated all the promises of the coming of the kingdom of God. But in Jesus' incarnation, His earthly life, it has arrived in power and broken into this present evil world. The King Jesus has come and He today in this room, in this city, and on this planet is ruling and reigning over many. To be in the kingdom is to have come into the saving kingship of Jesus. It is an unseen, non-physical, but very real realm that people, if they knew the reality of that realm and what it meant, would be desperately scrambling to get into And if you're in the kingdom, evidenced by your heart has been and is so open to the treasure of the message of the kingdom, that is, the good news of Jesus Christ, the King coming and dying for your sins and being raised from the dead, and you've embraced Him, that means you're in the kingdom. That means somehow you have scrambled your way in. This coming of the kingdom realm, the message, not just in the first century and in our text, but today, when that message that the 72 preach, or we preach, when it's preached, when it's proclaimed, it divides It draws a line in the sand by announcing peace to those who receive the message. And it announces horrific judgment to those who reject Jesus. Pick up with verse 10. But... Whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, The kingdom of God has come near. Jesus says, hey guys, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day of judgment. It will be more bearable for Sodom than for that town you go to. The disciples are to give 
public warning. First we noticed it. They don't receive you. He didn't say anything about healing the sick there. And then they do this dramatic act that we have seen earlier with the twelve that basically means you're as if totally separate from God. You're Gentiles. This is an act as they proclaim the kingdom and they don't receive it. You're saying to these Jewish towns by shaking the dust of their town off your feet, you are separated from God's kingdom, from His rule, from His reign savingly over you. He says, you're to say, essentially, to the town, you missed it, guys. The kingdom was near and you blew it. And you're culpable for rejecting the only Savior. And so Jesus gives this solemn word of judgment. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. See, Sodom and Gomorrah, they are the Old Testament example of the essence of God's judgment and wrath falling. This is how the Apostle Peter would later write it in 2 Peter, for instance. Verse, chapter 2, verse 6. He writes, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, God condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Feel it? Jude, in verse 7, says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, just as they serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Okay. This is the picture they have in their mind. This is what Jesus knows. And so Jesus says, the ancient city of Sodom, despicable Gentile city, will have it better on the day of judgment than for these Jewish towns that reject you guys in the message I'm giving to them through you. You see that? Cities here that reject God's messengers of the gospel will have a more severe judgment because more and greater revelation of salvation in Christ has come to them than Sodom. Then Jesus goes on to expand on the gravity of what it means to reject the Gospel, the Savior. Verse 13, And woe to you, Chorazin, Galilean city! And woe to you, 
Bethsaida. Because if the mighty works that have been done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes, the signs of humility and repentance. But, as it is, it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. So Jesus just said that these specific cities in the Galilean region, and He compares them to Tyre and Sidon, which are Old Testament cities of judgment. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Joel, Ezekiel, all prophesy some bad stuff of judgment about Tyre inside it. That's the context of Jesus' words. And He says, those cities will be judged. Those wicked Gentile cities will be judged. But they will fare better than these Galilean cities that had the incarnate Christ visit them and cast out demons and heal their sick and they yet reject me. In verse 15, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No. You shall be brought down to Hades. We have seen in Luke the many works that Jesus Himself personally did in Capernaum. It was His town He lived in. And He says your destination because of your rejection is not heaven. It's Hades. Now, see, in the Old Testament, which is written in Hebrew, There's a Hebrew word, Sheol, which essentially means the place of the unrighteous dead when they die. And then, about 200 years before Christ came, when the Hebrew is being translated into Greek, what Greek word do we use for Sheol? It's the word Hades. So this is what he means. It's not good. (laughs) This is not heaven. It's the place of those dying in unrighteousness. In light of the clarity of Scripture everywhere and in light of the words of Jesus in particular, it is always shockingly disconcerting that when evangelical, I don't mean every Christian, when they proclaim born-again evangelical Christians are pulled on stuff and, they, and there's questions that are asked like, uh, you agree or disagree that you know, you're basically good citizen neighbors, you know, that live a pretty good life. When they die, they'll live in heaven forever. When you get 40 to 45% that say, Agree! Jesus didn't speculate about the future judgment. He declared the reality of it. And he made it clear that people 
will be judged for their sins. That is, those, in this context, who do not receive, who have not taken refuge in the realm of the saving kingdom of God, they will be judged justly according to the degree of light that they rejected. It will be, is a comparative word, it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Yeah. Let's not miss Jesus' penetrating point in its context. These cities that He is warning are religious towns who were not only familiar with God's Word, but they were familiar with the person of Jesus and His ministry and His miraculous wonders. Sodom, Tyre, Sidon. Jesus does this purposely. They're pagan cities. They're not Jews. They're Gentiles. They're not religious in a sense at all. Judgment is coming. The warning is that those who sit in synagogue, those who sit in churches, and yet Remain unmoved by the offer of peace with God through Jesus Christ. These people will be judged more severely than just your everyday pagan who has never heard the message of the gospel of the kingdom. The power of salvation. The means of sinners being eternally saved from their sin. Means. What do I mean? Just, okay. If you have a nail, that nail needs to go into the wood. Okay. You use a means. You got me, a man, and I got a hammer, a tool in my hand, and it's going to go in there, and I need to pat. Therefore, I got to do it through the means of the hammer and the man swinging it. Wham! And the nail going in there is eternal life of, of this soul and that soul. How does that happen? It happens through the means of Jesus sending out the 36 pairs. It happens through the means of not sending them out only, but sending them out with the message. The message, the words, the proclamation of hear ye, hear ye. God has fulfilled His promises that have lay there for centuries and sent us the kingdom with the King who has come in order to bear the punishment for sins in His own person, in His own humanity on the cross. And God has justified all who will believe in Him by raising Him, Jesus literally and physically from the dead, and He will come back again. So if you believe, you'll be a nail 
driven into the board. The means is the gospel message. And that's why Jesus ends with verse 16. Here's the hammer. The hammer that he hands to these 72 men. The one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Many times people say, I know I hear this, but if I were only living back then and I could have seen Jesus perform these miracles and hear Him speak the kingdom message, then I would believe. No, you wouldn't. These towns Jesus is speaking of met Him. He preached in their synagogues and on their hills. And He ate in their homes. And He healed their loved ones. And yet, they reject Him. They refused to submit to Him as King. And yet, for the last 2,000 years, millions of people who have not seen Jesus ever in His incarnation, in His flesh, heard the message and the kingdom's power totally transformed their life. It's the message. It's the message of the kingdom. One's relationship with Jesus is directly connected to your relationship to the message. To the Scripture. Not just a little bit here or take a little bit there. To every jot and tittle. What is your relationship with the Bible and focus down to the essence and the core of the message of the person, the life, the work, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. No matter what a person says about their religiosity, the essence of one's real relationship is reflected by the relationship to the message that you heard through the apostles. Through the messengers. If they receive you, they receive me. If they reject you, they reject me. And not only do they reject me, they reject the God of all the Bible. Just so He's clear. They reject Him who sent me, my Father in heaven. The issue is a heart issue. People, all of us people, are naturally dead to the message of the Gospel. Whether you were raised in church or not. Churched 
or unchurched. Wheat doesn't naturally grow. Weeds do. And I go back to the beginning of the sermon in Jesus' words. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest that He would send out laborers into the harvest. Now, think about it. If God sends workers into the field, but He is not sovereign over the wheat, He's not sovereign or Lord of the harvest, which the text says He is, but if He were not the sovereign one who not only sends people to preach, but He's the one that sovereignly causes new birth to happen. If that were not true, then there would be no wheat to reap when He answered the prayer of sending out laborers into the field. Pray to the Lord of the wheat to cause people to be moved, to be saved and not condemned in the hearing of the Gospel. Pray for Sovereign Grace Fellowship that the influence of this farm field, God, You would grow wheat and let it be harvested here. See, the point is that God is sovereign over everything. And as we saw at the beginning of the sermon, He loves to glorify His name. And we have seen He is even more glorified in saving people when He does it as a result of Sovereign Grace Fellowship prayers. Pleading. Begging Him to do it. Now, can that be an encouragement to you tomorrow on Monday or Tuesday? Whenever your fast and prayer day is for these first three months, particularly for the farm field of Sovereign Grace Fellowship, that if that's true, that if you find yourself fasting and you get hungry again and you realize, oh, I'm fasting until dinner, if that's your fast. And oh, that's right, I'm praying for God to add to Sovereign Grace Fellowship. Wheat sprouting up four or five new family units. If you're praying for it, and you understand this about God, isn't that an encouragement that because of your prayer, He will do it? When you think about Jesus' words to beg the Lord of the harvest, each of us has to ask ourselves, do I pray? Do I pray for the gospel to spread throughout the world in missions? Do I pray particularly for Madalena, whom we support in Africa? Do I pray, not just in general, but for the souls of members that I'm in covenant with at Sovereign Grace Fellowship? Do I pray for conversions of people that will come into this farm field of Sovereign Grace 
fellowship. Let's, here it is. This is, I only do this because I, I know this is what I need and I'm helpful. Let's be very honest. We all pray for things <laughs> that matter most to us. When that loved one got cancer, that other person very close to you is sick. Your children, whom you care so much about, there's some problem in their life. It is amazing how easily and urgently we cry out to our Father in heaven. So just having said that, here's my encouragement. As we continue in this three months of focused fasting and prayer, you're one day a week where you fast one meal or, or, or two meals to pray for God to add to Sovereign Grace Fellowship. Four to five at least new family units here in 2012. Could we pray like it was a loved one who got a bad doctor's report? And so, as you do pray on your pray day this week and the weeks to follow, remember that our fasting is meant to strengthen our faith. That those hunger pains, that's right, I'm supposed to be praying. It reminds you of that. And it also says, yes, that's right, I am hungry. That's how serious I am in obeying Jesus. Pray to the Lord. Of the harvest. Come, sir. Our fasting as we pray on that particular day is a constant reminder that we are saying in our prayers to God, I want the answer to this prayer more than I want food right now. And I want food really badly. Father, together now, I lead us in prayer that You, the great Lord of the harvest, You, the Lord over those whom You cause to pray for the harvest, would You do that to make us more fervent, more desperate, more yearning, and more trusting in the glorious reality of Your sovereignty which leads us more to pray, not less. Do this to the glory of the only great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ.